Welcome to episode 187 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week, my guest is Colleen Forseth. Colleen served in the Navy as a medical professional. She was looking for a way to pay for college and a path forward, and the Navy gave her that opportunity. She had a hard time picking the right job, but was able to secure a spot in the coveted corpsman career field. She headed off to boot camp when a spot became open last minute, and she didn't really feel prepared, but was able to get through the training. Today, she is working to build her own business, helping veterans. She created Less BS for Vets and wants to help make the transition process out of the military easier. She also shared her story in a compilation memoir, Into the Mirror. It's another great interview, so let's get started. Welcome to the show, Colleen. I'm excited to have you here. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me, Amanda. So let's start with why did you decide to join the military? So when I decided to join the military, I was 21 and I was living in Colorado. The idea of joining the Navy first came to me a few weeks before Thanksgiving. I was sitting in my room that I rented at my friend's house and trying to figure out what to do with my life when I saw a commercial for the Navy Reserve and they were advertising a $20,000 bonus. This was at the height of the recession. Things were starting to really get bad. We're talking, that was when the newspapers were, this was at the end of 2008. So newspapers had headlines every day about thousands of jobs lost. And I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. So I thought, well, I mean, money for college and $20,000 in the bank, that doesn't sound like a bad way to go. And then I met with the recruiter and it The conversation progressed into her asking me if I wanted to go on active duty, and she mentioned traveling. So it uh, definitely reeled me in. So you were seeing like $20,000 bonus and a way to pay for college, and that's what got you in the door. And then the recruiter threw out some travel words and other things. You're like, oh, I want to do that. I did, and she mentioned to me that... I could go to Europe and get stationed there. And that was like my dream ticket. And she talked about Spain and Italy. And it's kind of funny because when I ended up in, I joined to go to Europe, but I went to Asia, Africa, and Australia instead. So I went everywhere else but Europe. And to this to this day, my nephew, uh, my sister was pregnant when she went to Europe. So my nephew has been there and I haven't. That's kind of funny. Well, at least you did get to travel. Maybe not to Europe. Yes, yes, I did. So once you decided that you were going to join, did you pick your career field and then get ready to go to boot camp or what happened? So there was actually a long window between when I initially signed up and when I went to boot camp. And I changed jobs probably four or five times in that time. So it started off, I took the ASVAB and I did really well in certain areas. The one area I did terrible in was mechanical. So then they tried to put me in an engineering role, which clearly was not a good fit. And then they were like, well, maybe you could, you you know, work in the air department. Well, I failed my depth perception test. And we tried a couple other things. I had signed my initial contract, but we couldn't send me off because I didn't have a set job yet. And I had, it was around Christmas time or after the holidays, I went home to Virginia. I had enlisted out of Colorado. And I thought, well, until we get this figured out, you know, I might as well visit family. And my recruiter gave me a call and we had talked about being a foreman. But she said probably it wouldn't happen because there were never any billets available for hospital corpsmen. And one magically, somehow I came open and she told me, she's like, you got to get back here now so you can sign your papers and you can get this slot for boot camp. And I remember I was so excited and I was like, I got to get to the airport now. And my family's like, where are you going? I'm like, I'll tell you when I'm back. 
And so did you make it to the recruiting station in time and get all the paperwork? I did. My recruiter, she didn't necessarily pull some strings, but she didn't advertise that this spot was open. So she told me to hightail it because she could only keep it on the down low for so long. And I I literally got a flight the next, this was, she called me like six o'clock Eastern Standard Time that night. And I was on an early flight the next morning from Washington, D.C. back to Colorado to, to get this new contract signed so I could lock it in. Awesome. So how long was it after you signed the contract that you went off to train? Probably about three weeks. And it wasn't supposed to be that quick. So the way it worked was I was going to sign the contract. I had to go back to Denver for that because that's where I enlisted out of. which I was living there at the time. And I was going to go back to DC and stay for a few months. And they were projecting maybe May. So I was like, all right, you know, stay with family. That's fine. Well, then I got a call again, last minute, and a spot had opened up immediately and I had to take that spot. (laughs) So they're like, pretty much you have to drop everything and come back. And I was like, okay. So I think I had a two day window to say goodbye to everybody and hop on the plane and go to boot camp in the middle of February, 2009. And it's in Chicago, right? Area? It's in the Chicago area. So Great Lakes is probably, and I, I could be wrong about this. I think it's like an hour train ride, give or take. So it's, Definitely. And I mean, the the winters are biting cold is not an accurate description for how powerful those winds are. I think that was what I was trying to say. It was in the Chicago area. I knew it was cold. I got there at the tail end of winter and it was still pretty bad. And what they don't what they don't tell you is so they made us run everywhere on base. And even when it when there's ice on the ground, they expected us to run everywhere in our boots. The only time we were permitted to not run was if they had a base-wide, basically moratorium on it. And they said that they would do that for safety, but I mean, there'd have to be almost like an an inch thick of ice for them to do that. Yeah, that sounds crazy. So did you feel ready for boot camp since you like didn't really, you were like, oh, I have a few months slash days. And then you were on a plane going to boot camp and kind of, I feel like it was really rushed. So did you feel ready? I was not ready at all. I had no idea what I was getting into. And when I, I remember when I got to the airport, they got us off the plane. There were a group of us that flew together. And the recruit division commanders, RDCs, they were lining us up and telling us to sit in rows. And then, you know, the, the screaming started immediately once they, they checked. They're like, are you going to boot camp? We're like, yes. And then they're like, all right, get in line, you know. And so that was, that was an experience. Uh, I was not ready. And I, I really it was hard to not start crying, sitting there, staring at the the back of the head in front of me. But I was like, I'm not gonna, I gotta keep it together. And so how did the training progress? Did it get easier as you went through it? Or was it a challenge the whole way through? It was a challenge in the sense that I was obviously I was 21. And I didn't really know what I was doing. And I didn't I, I knew I needed to do something with my life. Boot camp, it seemed like a good idea, but I had never had that many people screaming at me all the time all at once. And like everything from, and then ironing was a challenge. Like I was not good at ironing things. And they, in boot camp, they, you know, they have a lot of Navy uniforms. So they want you to look on point because Navy is really big into ceremonies. So from day one, they told us, you will get up in the middle of the night and you will iron everything. And they told us, like, even our underwear had to be ironed perfectly. So we're learning to march, you know, we're talking about learning 
important things like firefighting, because if you're on a ship and there's a fire, the whole crew has to firefight. But instead, I'm stressed out over, okay, can, can I get this perfect crease that they want, you know, in my underwear? Like, that's what I was stressing out about the first couple weeks. So I guess it made focusing on everything else easier because I was, you know, the little things were the hardest for me. Yeah, I'm not very good at ironing. I'm like, it, should, it seems like it should be easy, but it's it's kind of hard, especially when you're trying to get those perfect military creases. The ironing was hard and getting the perfect creases. In fact, in boot camp, what people used to do is the way it would work is they would lift our, so in, in birthing, we have, they basically look like bunk beds. They call them racks because that's what they call them on the ship. So in boot camp, they want to get you prepared for going to the fleet. So they use all the terminology and everything is designed to fit exactly in its place in, in a ship bunk. So what they would do is they would go around and if things weren't folded completely correctly, our RDCs would start pulling everything out and throwing it on the floor. So it wasn't uncommon. Like the first two weeks at the end of each day, everyone's stuff was thrown everywhere. And like you had to look at each item of clothing and see whose name was written on it. So people could give it back. It it was stressful. Yeah, it sounds stressful. So you went through training and you survived it. And then did you graduate boot camp and then head off to your technical school or did you go to your first base? So I went from boot camp and I went to technical school. They call it A school. And A school was the general training. So I went to three months to learn to be a hospital corpsman. I was one of the last graduating corpsman classes from the training school in Great Lakes, Illinois. Probably about 10 years ago, they combined with the Air Force and the Army in Texas. So the way it works now is everyone gets a similar initial medical training because they wanted to make it so... A lot of bases are combining, like Naval Hospital Bethesda is also joined with the Army. It's a joint base. So it's easier to have corpsmen and medics working side by side if they get the same initial training. So there's more familiarity. And we didn't have that. So it would have been nice to see what it was like to learn alongside the Air Force and the Army. So you went to a training and you were one of the last classes. Now they do it to this joint, which is, that makes sense to do it in a way where you get to work beside your other branches, learn the terminology, all be on the same page. So after that, did you go into the fleet? I did not. So the way it worked was, I honestly had no idea what I wanted to do. I was just going to class, you know, my my only concern was to not fail a test. We had a test each week and I wanted to pass all the tests. So then that way I could get orders and I figured I'd go to a clinic or something. They told us from day one, have realistic expectations. You're probably going to go to a hospital or a clinic and just take vital signs. So I said, okay, but you know, they, they, a lot of people dream of like seeing action or going with the Marines because corpsmen, they go with the Marines and it's a lot of times it's, you know, people want to go to battle and see all this crazy stuff. So they're, I don't know if disappointed is the word, but they needed some, their expectations checked a little bit, but we near the end of our graduation, we got the option to pick a C school. So that's like an advanced technical school. And one thing I knew I wanted to do is eventually go back to college. So they mentioned a lab tech program. So they mentioned an associate's degree from George Washington University out of Washington, D.C., which is a fantastic school. And it's it's expensive to get any kind of degree from there. So I was like, okay, you know, solid training I can get and it'll be useful after the military. So I signed up for it. Plus, they said that we would be in San Diego for a year. So going to California was not a problem in my book. 
Okay, so you signed up for that program. Was it competitive to get into that program, or did everyone who wanted to do it get to so do it? So pretty much everyone who wanted to do it got to do it because not... I wouldn't say not a lot of people didn't want to go to lab school, but it wasn't as popular. Like everyone was always trying to get into the x-ray tech program and that one was always full. So I think my choices were like surgical tech, pharmacy tech and lab tech, which they, and preventative medicine, they always needed people in those areas. So you went to tech school and then you went to this lab tech school and you got your associates. How long, what you said it was a year? It's actually really interesting because I did go to San Diego to start lab tech school, but I did not finish it. And it was pretty mortifying at the same time. I probably made it barely halfway through the program and I struggled. So the way it works is lab school is split into four three-month sections. There's the first section, three months is testing. Then the second window is three months of clinicals. And then the second half is split again. The first half is the advanced schooling, like on hematology and other things. And then you have three months of clinicals before you get pushed out into the fleet. So I reached the maximum number of test failures in the first three-month window. I made a few clinicals, but they told me if I failed one more exam, I was going to get kicked out. I did study. Unfortunately, hematology beat me, and I did not uh, pass that class. And so I was thrown into holding company. And holding company was basically, we went there and they gave us stuff to do like sweep or paint or shred, whatever little things they needed done. But failing out of lab school is one of the best things that's ever happened to me because I got temporary orders to a ship down at 32nd Street. And that is the ship eventually I got orders to. Yeah, and I guess it was a good thing to get sent there. So let's talk a little bit more about that and why it was such a good experience. So when I first got to the ship, I was uh, very young. I had no real, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And, you know, it was fine. I was in E3, which is one of the ju- very junior ranks. And when I got to the ship, immediately I was thrown into the middle of things. So I was on a destroyer. And even though I was temporary, there were only three corpsmen. And the corpsmen were at the center of everything. So I was expected to interact with the crew. And I was expected to answer tough questions. It's very challenging as an E3 to be expected to diplomatically tell someone of a higher rank, no, you have to go to your medical appointment or you cannot be late for your shots. And I started to get into the rhythm of things quickly. I ended up getting there and I found out they were deploying and they they needed a female corpsman immediately. Because the one they had was having to transfer off the off the boat. I uh, for medical reasons, I'm not 100 percent sure what. But the first day I got there, my senior chief walked in and you know, he asked me some questions about what I was doing and my career path. And I told him, I'm like, I'm up for orders, and I, you know, I'd love to deploy. And so he's like, Okay, well, I'm calling the detailer right now. And he called the detailer and he got the orders locked in. And the schoolhouse was so mad because the way it works as a corpsman, it's really hard to get orders to a ship. There, there just aren't a lot of billets. So I was getting to go to a ship and there were, you know, there were E5s and E6s that had deployed with the Marines and been in 10, 15, 20 years. And they had never been to a ship. And here I am, this little E3 that's been in the Navy barely a year. I fell out of lab school and I'm getting like golden ticket of orders. That's how it goes. <laughs> Right? Right place. That's what it was. It was timing and they needed somebody immediately. And it was hard to get another corpsman from the hospital because 
the hospital, you know, they need their people too. And the fact that I was up for orders, like I was just in the right window. I mean, that's just the way it goes sometimes with a lot of stuff that happens in the military, different things in your career or different opportunities. It's just knowing the right person, being in the right place. So you got the orders. And even though some people were mad, did they stick? They did stick, but they didn't like it. And I won't say that they tried to screw it up, but they didn't make it easy. And it was, this was about June 2010. And it was a stressful month because I was trying not to get my hopes up. I was so excited at the idea of going to a ship and seeing the real Navy. But I, you know, I just wanted to let life happen. Well, my, my senior chief at the time was determined that this was going to happen because he had things to do and he knew he had something he had to get done before he left because oh, we were, so we didn't deploy until September, but we were slated to potentially leave on deployment in July. So there wasn't enough time to, to waffle. He needed a person then. So it happened. So between June and September, when you guys finally left, like, were you doing training to get prepared for the deployment? Or what was the typical day like? And then what was it like when you actually were out at sea? So the the in-between time was chaotic because I was going to the ship and then going back to the schoolhouse and trying to get everything done to get to be able to go to the ship if it got cleared. So I had medical exams and at the time I'd had anemia. So I had to do a lot of extra tests to make sure I was cleared to go to the ship. And then I had to move from my barracks to the ship and get everything else lined up and figure out a place to put my car. And it it was a whirlwind. So it was, but definitely exciting. And I got the orders locked in. And then I think I had less than a week to get moved out and get to the ship and report. And I remember my first day there, I had a bunch of files shoved in my hands and I was told, don't screw these up because if you do, you'll kill someone. And I was like, oh, that's no pressure. <laughs> so it, it, there was no there was no transition time. I didn't get to like process or, you know, have a really nice intro where I got a tour of the ship and got to take it slow. No, it was like from that day I hit the ground running. Yeah. And it shows the responsibility required for military members. Like you're almost brand new and they're like, this is important. <laughs> like... If you don't do this, there are consequences and someone could die. And that's like, oh, wow, this is the military there. It's not just like, oh, someone might get a paper cut. It's like a big deal. And even when you're a young enlisted rank, that doesn't change the fact that you have play an important role in meeting the mission. Exactly. And like the mission hit me head on from literally the time I got there. And it was a lot because I knew my job was important. And I knew that I had to send an example for the crew, but it didn't hit me until I was there exactly what that meant. Because they always tell you in core school, you know, you're not going to, don't expect to do everything right away. You're going to have to put your time in and get higher rank. And it just was a lot faster. And, you know, I remember right before I got there and my orders were set in, there was a captain's call out on the flight deck with everyone and the CO is there and we're all out there and I'm just standing, you know, I'm standing in the back and just listening. And then the CO gives me a shout out and he's like, we'd like to welcome our new baby doc. And everyone turns and looks at me and I'm like, I just remember awkwardly waving hi. So uh, it was a small command, but it was a lot all at once and leadership 
was already looking to me for answers to questions if that was the need of the day. Lots of responsibility. So where did you end up going on your deployment? You said that you went not to Europe. I know that. (laughs) So I went to Asia, Africa, and Australia instead. So we actually, my ship was interesting. We had two deployments within a very short window. So the ship was out for six months, and then we were back for eight and then out for another six. But during that eight-month window, we went to something called dry dock, where the ship did all their repairs quickly. So typically at the time, ship cycle, they'd have one or two deployments in a maybe three-year window, and then somewhere in between have a year in dry dock. We jammed it all into less than 24 months. So the first deployment we went to, the very first port we pulled into was in the Philippines. We were supposed to go to Manila, but we ended up going to Subic Bay, which is where the Navy used to have a base. But the port's still open, so ships can pull in. And I was so excited. It was the first foreign country I'd ever been to. And it was about a month into deployment, and everyone was just ready to go and have a good time. And then did you get to go and explore the Philippines? I know that when you're on a ship, you have to like go in groups. So were you able to do that? In Subic Bay, we had a pretty tight radius. We had, there were a few blocks we were authorized to go to, but it was the first stop of the deployment. They wanted to make sure that, you know, everything was kept safe and centered and we put on a good, you know, kept everything organized. So um, overnight liberty was not allowed. Some ports you could go out and stay overnight, some you couldn't. For this port call, we had to be in groups of two or three. So at the time, a male and female couldn't go out overnight alone. I think they could go out for day liberty alone. Um, now, obviously, the rules the rules differ for each ship, um, and it's really up to the captain. So for this port, we could go out in groups. The only thing we couldn't do is you can't go out alone. So you had to have a, you had to have a liberty buddy. So was there anything from either of those deployments that really like stood out or changed you as a person? That port was actually the port where I fell in love with my future husband. And, um, you know, it it was definitely an interesting experience. And I made a lot of lifelong friends and we had a great time. There was, I remember this amazing beach bar. We all just danced and the drinks were fantastic and, it was really just like a college dive bar on the beach, but it was interesting because it was not, it was in a different country. Yeah, that sounds really fun. And were you like really busy when you were on the ship? Like, did you have to work a lot of hours or did you have to do watches or what was that experience like being out at sea? So in port, Corman would stand watch. And this was always kind of a sensitive topic because Corman do not stand watch underway. And that was not popular necessarily with the rest of the crew. But the reason is we were always on call if there was a man down. So there, anytime there was, so basically we were kind of on call 24 seven. I remember one night we had an electrical shock patient, someone with chest pain, and then someone fell at the same time. So all three of us were sent in different directions on the ship. But that's, that's why we didn't stand watch underway. But we did work. Working hours on the ship were officially from 0600 to 2200. Now, obviously, you don't work every single second. Sometimes you can work out during lunch and get like a two-hour lunch. And usually after dinner, it would wind down. So chow was at 1800. So 
we probably stop working around 20 hundred, so 8 p.m. and get a couple hours. We never got a full day off. Uh, Sunday was holiday routine, so we might be allowed to sleep until like nine if we didn't have a patient. We could take a slightly longer lunch and work out, watch a movie in the afternoon. But generally, the expectation was that after lunch, we'd work between lunch and dinner at least. Yep. Always working. I remember that about my deployment too. It's like, you're always working. Yeah. So that was like two deployments in like less than two years. And then did you get off that ship and go to another ship or did you get out of the military? What happened next? I did two deployments. And before the second one, I actually found out that my detailer had not written my orders correctly. So Corpsmen were supposed to go to ships for three years, but I had two-year orders. So that opened up a lot of doors for what I could do. So I ended up deciding I was having trouble negotiating with the Navy for where they wanted me to go next. I had done two deployments. I wasn't too fixated on a specific duty location, but I had an idea of what I wanted. And they basically told me, well, you only get to go needs the Navy. And I'm like, well... It wasn't really going to work for me. I had done a lot and I'd seen a lot and that was great, but I wanted a little bit of a say in what I got to do next. And that just wasn't, that just wasn't happening. So I remember I was talking to another senior chief that came to the ship and there was a medical inspection team and he was asking about my career, what I wanted to do. And I mentioned my frustrations in dealing with the detailer and he's like, well, you're an E4, you'll go where the Navy tells you to go, not where you want. And that just didn't really strike a good chord with me. I wasn't feeling it. And so I said, okay, well, if that's the attitude the Navy wants to take, then I know what I want to do. The reason I it was so important that my orders were written the way they were was I had another option, which was, so the military constantly has something called the early out option. And at the time, the Navy was trying to reduce their force. So this was an option I've been aware of, and you can get out of your contract up to 24 months early. So I used this window to drop my early out package and basically request to get out of 19 months of my contract. And it worked out really well because the ship wanted to say no, but they couldn't because I asked to get out the same month they were slated to get a replacement for me. That worked out nicely. So you were able to use the early out option and take the time from your time in the Navy and start something new. I did start something new. My initial plan had been to go to college, but it was a little bit of a crazy time because, again, I didn't get a nice, gentle transition from military life to civilian life. Instead, I looked for a job and I did find a great one, but... I only had a couple months before I ha- ended up having to move to Hawaii. But this time it was with them, my then husband because he was getting transferred there. So I went with him as a military spouse. That's one of the challenges of being a military spouse. Having a career and then having to move and find another career or start over in a new career. So in Hawaii, were you able to find a career or did you go to school? What did you do? In Hawaii, I did find a really good job. I ended up working in an architecture firm, and it was interesting. We were not going to be there that long because at the time, we were trying to figure out, you know, the whole, well, are we re-enlisting? Are we getting out? Are we done with the military? And it seemed to be the decision was finally that leaving the military behind was the best decision. So I waited to go to school because I wanted to figure out where we were going to live. 
And we finally decided that, yes, you know, going to school was the right plan. And we were definitely done with military life. So it was very interesting going through transitioning out of the military to life after. I moved from Hawaii to Illinois a few months prior to my then husband because the idea was I was going to look for a job so we could have some stability once he was out and rejoin me. So once I had an idea, we decided I was going to move that September and this was in 2012. So I started school a month before because it seemed like a good time to get it going because college was going to take a few years and it was something I really wanted to knock out. So I started originally with an accounting degree and I was a full-time student. And at the same time, I was getting ready to coordinate yet another cross-country move. And I was going to take my animals with me. Like we had pets. I think at the time we had a dog and three chinchillas. So lots of moving parts. And I landed in Illinois and I didn't know what I was going to do. I was looking for a job. The GI Bill has an option. Basically, it has a built-in internship with it. So you can. it's almost like a work study. So it's not a lot of money. I think it's minimum wage. But it was enough. It was at least something. And at the time, I was staying with my in-laws. So it was a little bit of money coming in to help buy groceries, gas, stuff like that. And during my internship, I actually was interning at the VA. And I got to know some of the people there. And I hadn't even considered working for the federal government. But after a few months, they're like, you know, have you thought about working here? And I said, well, I don't really want to apply through USA Jobs. It takes months and I need something sooner. So then I found out about a hiring program called VRA. I think it's Veterans Recruitment Authority. And for recently separated veterans, they can basically bypass the hiring process and get hired directly into certain positions. And this was really appealing to me because... I wanted a good job and I knew working for the federal government was great. As a civilian, I just, it was kind of overwhelming to try to figure out the whole process. So it was just timing and luck that I found out about this because I had no idea the VRA even existed. Sounds like you're often in the right place at the right time. (laughs) I think part of it is I've never been shy about talking to people and this is both a pro and a con, but when people ask me how I'm doing, I genuinely answer. <laughs> so I'm, and I'm not even looking for anything or seeking anything from anyone. I'm just direct. And if people are like, how are you? I'm like, I probably answered, oh, I'm just really stressed out trying to figure out this job and move transition. I'm like, I didn't know it was going to be so crazy. And so I think the fact that I put myself out there, the idea occurred to people, it's like, oh, well, I need someone in this area. And that's how it happens. And I've met a lot of people and, you know, most people are a little bit more, I don't know, demure is not the word, but not as obvious as I am. So I I think the fact that that's just how I am is what helped open all those doors. Yeah. I mean, if you tell people what's going on in your life, then they can help you. And if you don't tell people, then if you say, I'm fine, then they're not going to you know, ask follow-up questions, they're just going to be like, oh, hey, they're fine. And if you tell them like, oh, I'm stressed and I can't find a job, then they might be able to help you. It's like totally different responses based on how you answer questions. It, it is. And I think the fact that I was in a more rural area at a smaller hospital made a difference. And a lot of people that work there are veterans. So what I found is the veteran community, they're really big into helping each other. And that sense of community still continues just in a different way. So the fact that You know, I was transitioning. We were transitioning from military life, and I was trying to figure out what I was doing 
next. And I had a lot of good skills from, and I, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was already having the foundation laid for a background in supporting executive leadership from my time on the ship. So I learned, I, I knew a lot more and had a lot more skills than I realized I did at the time. And other people could see that and they kind of helped guide me in the right direction. So it definitely was a benefit. I think it's really hard for us to see how some of the skills that we have in the military translate outside what we were doing when we were in the military and how we can use it. So I think that's normal for a lot of veterans. And the veteran community is a great place to connect because veterans want to help other veterans. I mean, they want to help people in general, but when they find out you're a veteran, they're like, oh, I really want to help you. It's a great place to be. Exactly. And a lot of the people that helped me were women veterans. So I think they were excited because, again, you know, I was I had just turned 25 and I was at that point where I was still young. I was coming into a like, I mean, you come, you become an adult at 18, but like I was newly married and starting my life. And so I think they just were excited to get to be a part of that. The hospital where I worked at, the women, they just like, they lifted each other up. It was amazing. And I know a lot has happened since then. And now your life has changed quite a bit, but what do you want to talk about? Like, what are you doing today? And what do you want people to know about now? So my time with the federal government was great. I learned a lot. And I especially learned that there's basically like a curtain. A lot of people don't know what's behind it. Like they know that it's, there's a lot of opportunities to work for the federal government, but it's very confusing to learn like what jobs are available, what career paths, USA Jobs is people know to go there to look for jobs, but it's confusing to find out. And what I've learned is I got really good at helping people figure out stuff like that with their resumes. And I got really good at writing resumes because I would ask people to help me with mine. And I remember I got quoted like $1,000 for a federal resume once upon a time. And this was in the I don't know, sometime in the 2010. So who knows how much it is now. And that was crazy to me because that was just for one resume and I didn't have any guarantee of return. So instead I was like, well, if I learn how to do this, I can reinvest in myself and feel more confident. So my friends were struggling with stuff and then my coworkers and that military mentality, I was like, well, let me, you know, this is something I'm good at. Would, you know, would you like some help? And it eventually grew into a business. Life happened and um, I needed to prioritize my career. But then eventually I decided that I wanted to walk away from my federal government career because I was looking for a little more flexibility I wanted to make. I wanted to move my life in a different direction. So I've turned to freelance writing. And one of the things I'm doing is I want to help veterans navigate life and work after the military because, and I mean, let's face it, one thing that people complain about in the military is they're always talking about how much BS they have to deal with. But that doesn't mean that there should be a lot after the military. So that's where I came up with the idea of less BS for veterans, because that's a website I wanted to make. And literally, if I can reduce people's pain points and help them resolve things, then that's something that you know can, can just help people be happier. So what sort of services do you offer? Do you do resume writing? career transition? What sort of things do you offer? So right now it's starting as a blog and the first area I'm writing about is breaking down 
the different resume types between like federal and a regular resume, trying to answer some of the mysteries, like how long does the federal resume need to be? How do you figure out how to write it? And eventually I want to, hopefully this year, I want to come out with an ebook with a little bit more information on what specifically you need to do for a federal resume. And then I would like to eventually offer some templates and eventually I'd like to get into coaching and help people figure out how to write their own. So then that way, that's something that, I mean, it's great to pay someone to do your resume. That's awesome. And sometimes it's useful, but if you invest in learning how to write it, then that's a skill that will stay with you forever. And it's it's nice to have that confidence, but it's very confusing. There's a lot of information out there that is, I'm not going to say misguided, but I don't know that people, I don't know that they're really making it a point to invest in the person and what they need to know rather than just make a buck. And that's partly why I'm trying to fill that need because my interest is genuinely, if people want to learn, I want to be there to help them. Yeah. So if you can teach them how to make a resume instead of just making them a resume. And then if they have another job, they'd have to come back to you and pay for another resume. Now you're going to teach them all the skills they need so that they can write their own resume and then use that in the future. Absolutely. And honestly, this whole thing started from a short story I wrote for an anthology last year. And I called it A Woman in a Warship. And a acquaintance of mine who she's turned into a friend, Abigail, she started her own publishing company called Wild Inc. And we've kind of grown together in our business ventures. And we talked about she's looking for book submissions. And I'm like, well, I've wanted to write this book for 10 years, like a woman in a warship, because I know where I started. And I mean, I was so socially awkward and clumsy. And they called me a little orphan Annie in boot camp because they, you know, they chop every, they used to chop everyone's hair short. And my hair was this bright red, frizzy, curly mess the whole time. So they didn't call me, you know, by my last name. They just call me Annie everywhere I went. And they would instruct people around the base to call me Annie. <laughs> so, and that was, you know, I can laugh at it now, but if I could go from that to learning how to, you know, create great relationships in my life and navigate having a career and, you know, all these transitions that just were nuts, like just going from one thing to another to another. And I think I've had like seven, eight, nine cross country moves in the last decade. So if I can somehow figure all that out, I wanted to put it into a book that people could relate to. And you know, also help women understand what the day-to-day life is like in the military. It's something beyond the commercials. We always hear about the crazy stories and that's awesome. But what they don't tell you is like 85% of the time you're going to be cleaning. Yeah. I guess that's why I wanted to create the podcast because you only hear like the highlight reel on the media. And I wanted to hear like the real stories, the good, the bad, and the boring parts and the fun parts and everything in between. My favorite One of the stories I used to tell exactly what it was like being in the military is I almost got kicked out for going to a share concert. And I'm not kidding. (laughs) I, this was in the age of don't ask, don't tell. And I went to, you know, I just bought a car and I was broke. I was trying to save money. So in San Diego, they have Balboa Park with a bunch of free events. And it was during the San Diego Pride event in June 2010. So this was right in between when I'm getting orders to the ship. And right after I got there, I, you know, it was this weekend and I saw there was a Cher concert. And I'm like, oh, I like Cher. She's cool. 
I went and sat and enjoyed it. It was great. I went home. Well, I had the bad luck to be on television <laughs> and someone saw me. And so they quizzed me when I got to the ship. They're like, what were you doing there? Were you trying to make a political statement? And I'm like, I literally was just enjoying a concert. And that's how crazy things were at that time and how politically charged a simple act was. So I think the only reason it didn't go farther was because I wasn't in uniform. But they, I mean, they they tried to make a thing out of it and they, they couldn't because I literally just went to go. But like they would dig and try to find things to pick into. Yeah, Lorraine was on my podcast at the end of last year. I don't know the episode number, but she talked about serving during Don't Ask, Don't Tell and how it was like kind of a witch hunt to try and find people and how she had to be really careful because she's part of the LGBTQ community. And she knew that when she joined that she had to not talk about that. And she talked about how challenging it was. It wasn't just Don't Ask, Don't Tell. It was like there was... A lot of negativity of like people like seeing you at a concert and then like trying to make it big deal and not just being like, oh, you're at the concert. Okay. It was like, we have to do more research, make sure that it's everything's okay instead of not worrying about it. That seems like the opposite of don't ask, don't tell. It was like, oh, we have an inkling. So now we get to ask all these questions, which is not the way. I don't think the law was right either way, but it's a lot more complicated when you talk to someone and you hear stories like that. It, it is. And I'm, I think it's really good that the law was repealed because, you know, I mean, it was, it, and I, you know, again, I can look back on it now, but it was really stressful because I was just going to a concert and I didn't know it was going to be there that day. I walked by, it looked fun and I enjoyed it and went home and, and that was the extent of it. But then it, you know, it became a much bigger thing. Yeah. So is there anything else from your time in the military or from what you're doing today that you wanted to talk about before we wrap it up with one last question? You know, I think the biggest thing is just, you know, just taking it one day at a time. It's been 10 years since I was out. And even though my life, you know, now I'm really rooted in my civilian life, but the military never stopped being a big part of me. And I found new ways to find that community because that was one thing I struggled with. I didn't have that sense of community anymore after I left. And I've had to get creative with connecting with other veterans and finding a way to establish that connection. Yeah. It's really important to get connected with the veteran community. And it's something that I didn't do for a long time. And I regret not being more involved sooner. So I I agree. So my last question is, what advice would you give to a young woman who's considering joining the military? I would definitely talk to your recruiter. They are a great resource, but I also would take everything they say with a grain of salt. They do tell the truth, but they also have different positions that they're trying to fill quickly. And the positions they need to fill quickly may not necessarily be a good fit. Just because someone's qualified, it doesn't mean it's the best fit for them personally. So take advantage of the internet, you know, reach out to amazing people like Amanda and or whoever else you feel comfortable with. And don't be afraid to advocate for yourself. And yeah, it's okay if someone gets irritated or they don't want to take the time. It's your life and it's going to be your military journey. And there is absolutely no shame in wanting to take a step back and making sure that this is the best fit for you. That's great advice. And I created a Women of the Military Mentorship Program, which I'll link to in the show notes. So if you want to talk to someone about joining the military who's not a recruiter and can give you advice, uh, I have a list of women 
ready and waiting to be paired up with you. So if you want to join that, you can sign up either to be a mentor or a mentee at the link in the show notes. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I've really enjoyed getting to hear about your time in the Navy and about what you're doing today. Thank you so much, Amanda, for having me. episode. If this is your first time listening to Women of the Military podcast, I encourage you to go back and listen to some of the other episodes on the podcast. There are so many episodes and stories of women who've served in the military who can inspire you at whatever stage of the journey you're in, joining, serving, leaving the military, or just learning about the women who have served in the military. If you want to support Women of the Military podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash women of the military. And if you enjoyed Women of the Military podcast, please leave a review on your favorite podcast app to help the podcast grow and reach more women who are considering military service.